Coming up, journalist Nate Blakesley and a true story of survival and obsession in the West. That park, that national park, is the one place in the world where you can reliably spot wolves from the roadside with a spotting scope. You don't get close to them, but the scopes are so powerful, you can see everything. You can see the expressions on their faces. Elk hunting is really big business in the Northern Rockies. If you're a guide who guides hunters, you can charge $5,000 for a single elk hunt. Hotels, restaurants, all cater to these out-of-town hunters that come every fall. Wolves eat a lot of elk, and so those, if you're in that business, you knew you stood up to lose a lot, too. Stephen himself is kind of a throwback. I mean, he lives in this cabin. He's a person that has never used Google. He has never right. sent an email. He has no landline. He can barely make a cell phone call. Um, most people in the Northern Rockies are not quite like him, right. and yet there is a sense that it is kind of a world apart. <laughs> Hey folks, welcome to the House of Krause. I'm Richard Krause. Come on in, have a seat at the bar, pour yourself what may or may not be your first Negroni of 2018, and sit back and listen to the conversation as it flies through the air. This is really interesting stuff. Nate Blakesley is a journalist. He's the writer-at-large for Texas Monthly. His first book, Tulia, was a finalist for the Penn Martha Albrand Award and won the J. Anthony Lucas Book Prize, the Texas Institute of Letters Nonfiction Prize, and was named a New York Times Notable Book of 2005. His new book is called American Wolf, A True Story of Survival and Obsession in the West. Now, this book follows the story of the struggle through the lens of the rise and fall of one wolf pack whose alpha female, nicknamed O6, became a favorite of Yellowstone Park visitors. It's fascinating stuff. And if you think you know everything about wolves, well, maybe you do, but I don't think you do. After you listen to this interview, you'll know even more. Also, I think that you'll find how wildlife and how wolves, particularly in the part of the world that Nate is talking about here in this interview, isn't just a wildlife issue. It's really a political issue. This is fascinating stuff. We started off by talking about, well, why wolves? You are a journalist, uh, and in most of your writing, from what I've been able to see, you haven't really delved into matters of wildlife. Why the sudden interest in wolves? Well, I've written mostly about politics and policy, mm -hmm. um, and I found that uh, wildlife management is very political. It, that was one of the revelations to me about this story. But really, I, I was drawn to the subject matter. You know, I I, uh, I used to go up to this part of the world, the Northern Rockies, mm -hmm. Wyoming, as uh, when I was in college to get summer jobs. I took a wolf watching class in Yellowstone, which is a very popular thing to do in Yellowstone, and I just absolutely loved it. And what was it about that that made you love it? What no, wolf watching course? What does that mean exactly? Yellowstone is that park, that national park, is the one place in the world where you can reliably spot wolves from the roadside with a spotting scope. You don't get close to them, but the scopes are so powerful, you can see everything. You can see the expressions on their faces. Um, and I didn't realize how fascinating their lives were. I didn't realize how social these animals were and what a complex sort of hierarchy each pack has. And it, it just seemed a, like an endlessly fascinating subject to me. And you put that aside for a long time, went and wrote about politics, went and wrote to, for Texas Monthly. You've done a lot of things. You live in Austin, Texas. Uh, why did you circle back? Well, I was always looking for an excuse to get back. When, <laughs> when I took that wolf-watching class, I met this, this man, the park's wolf guru, this man named Rick McIntyre, one of the most eccentric people I have ever met in my life, famously obsessed with wolves. They call him the wolf guy. Yeah. 
He's been there since reintroduction. Wolves were brought back to Yellowstone after having been gone for generations. They were brought back in the mid-90s. He was there from day one. He has famously never missed a day in the park for 15 years, whether he's <laughs> on the clock or off the clock. His schedule never changes. He rises before dawn, sets up in the dark, finds the wolves with their radio telemetry on their collars, their research collars, sets up his scope and waits. And he takes notes on every single thing he sees. I went to see his cabin. He got out just a sample of these notes. He has, at that time, 10,000 single-spaced pages of notes about the wolves of Yellowstone. And what will happen to all of those notes? I assume that maybe you used some of them, but what, what's the end game there for him, or I do did. you know? Well, in his mind, he's, he wants to write the classic story of the reintroduction of wolves to Yellowstone. He considers them to be – he's a sort of a proselytizer for wolves, mm-hmm. the ambassador – for wolves to the rest of the of the country, but for me, seeing those notes was a was a revelation. It made the, it possible to do this book I wanted to write in an entirely different way. And actually, I started with another person's notes. This this diehard wolf aficionado, almost as dedicated as as Rick. Her name's Lori Lyman. She's a retired school teacher from stack of notes, twenty four hundred pages of daily observations of this one particular wolf, O six, that I wrote about yeah. and her pack. And I read it, and it was like reading the diary of a wolf pack. And why should we care about wolves? Why should we care that they were reintroduced? The reason wolves were brought back to Yellowstone after having all been hunted out, mostly by fur trappers and then later by cattle ranchers who came to that part of the country, um, is that what you saw in Yellowstone was this explosion in the elk population. Because wolves are the apex predator. Mm-hmm. They were the only thing that really preyed on elk. Without them, the population went nuts, and it began damaging the habitat to the degree that early on park rangers had to start culling wolves, culling elk themselves. Mm-hmm. They basically replaced wolves with rifles, and they shot thousands of them every winter when, you know, when there were no visitors around. Yeah, yeah. And the idea that a more holistic solution might be to bring the wolves back, that, that idea arose as early as the 1940s, but it was extremely controversial. Because the descendants of those same ranchers that hunted them out generations ago, they're all still there. They're all still running sheep, not in cattle, not in the park, but around the park. Mm-hmm. And they knew they'd lose stock if the wolves came back. And also, elk hunting is really big business in the northern Rockies. If you're a guide who guides hunters, you can charge $5,000 for a single elk hunt. Hotels, restaurants, all cater to these out-of-town hunters that come every fall. Wolves eat a lot of elk. And so those, if you're in that business, you knew you stood to lose a lot too. Is that where the political side of this story comes in? As you said, you were a journalist who typically covered uh, politics. Is that what that means to you? Yes, very much so. You know, we think of of wilderness as sort of the opposite of civilization. There's, There's the natural world and then there's the world we create for ourselves. But in a place as exploited as the American West, and no doubt parts of Canada too, where you've had resource extraction, mm-hmm. timber and fur and coal and oil and gas for so long. Wilderness is something that has to be created or recreated by people. And not everyone agrees on what that ideal wilderness should look like, what should be left in and what should be left mm-hmm. out. Um, and there's always going to be winners and losers, and it becomes a very politicized process. And nowhere was this more the case than with wolves. I'm speaking with Nate Blakesley. His book is called The Wolf, A True Story of Survival and Obsession in the West. Tell me some of the forces at play during the events in this. Well, you, you've touched on it, but let's go into detail here. We've got a bit of time. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> when the idea was first floated to bring them back, what you had was this dynamic, very common in Western politics in the United States, where you had sort of this argument of local control versus this intrusive federal bureaucracy mm-hmm. coming from Washington. 
The reason that's such a big issue in the West is much of the West, as your listeners may know, is federal land. The state of Idaho, two-thirds of that is controlled by the federal government. So you had this phenomenon where the people that live there aren't actually making policy and the, in the woods, for example, right. the timber harvest. And and for as long as... So like, people that live thousands of miles yeah, away yeah. are maybe right. making the rules, right? Right. Or me or myself in Texas, yeah. which is a very long way from the Northern yeah, Rockies. Yeah. I had a say too because the land belongs to me too. Right. Um, and so as long as the land was sort of managed with resource extraction as the top goal, that was fine. But in the 1970s when the environmental movement started gaining steam, when people like me... St- started to say, well, let's, maybe we should be managing those Western lands with different goals in mind, yeah. restoring ecosystems, restoring predators. Then it became an issue. You had this widespread revolt among Western legislators. They called it the Sagebrush Rebellion. And the idea was that this land ought to be taken away from the federal government and given to those state governments or private owners, ranchers, so that it can be managed the way they want to manage it. And, and this fight over wolves is kind of part and parcel of that same much longer, much broader debate that's been going on since before I was born. You're shining a light on this now, but why isn't this a much larger question? Well, in the West, it is. Maybe it is, yeah. Yeah, in the yeah. West, where you, if you're a certain kind of politician in the West, where you stand on wolves is a litmus test. Just like gun control or abortion, it's something – it's a way of telling voters what you stand for and what kind of candidate you are. And the politics around it has become very poisonous out of all proportion to the actual impact that wolves have had on either ranching or or hunting. It's interesting when I think of – and I'll say American politics, but it's happening here too – is that there is no nuance anymore. You know, it's, it's almost like watching sports. You are a Leafs fan, a Toronto Maple Leafs fan, or you're a, a Habs fan, a, a yeah. Montreal fan, and you will never be one or the other. Or you can't kind of say, "Oh, I'll watch the Habs if the Leafs get knocked." You know, there is no, uh, there is no middle ground anymore. It seems. No, I think you're right too. But when you do start to dig into an issue like hunters in the West have made common cause against the wolves, but they're not natural allies. They're far from it. If you are a rancher in the West and you are running cattle near a national forest or in a national forest, which is something that happens in the United States, you resent elk. Mm-hmm. If you're paying to irrigate alfalfa for your cattle, the last thing you want to see when you open your screen door in the morning <laughs> is hundreds of elk out there eating it. Yeah. And elk are in the deer family, but they are large animals. The bulls can be 700 pounds. They're basically like beef cattle with long legs. Yeah. They don't live lightly on the landscape. <laughs> and the ranchers would like to see, they'd like to see fewer wolves, but they'd like to see fewer elk too. And secretly, they're glad that there's fewer elk. <laughs> Meanwhile, hunters tend to resent ranchers. For that very issue I just mentioned, the National Forest Service, they will lease land at very cheap rates, by the way, to ranchers and have for generations. So you have cattle in the National Forest eating forage that would have been eaten by elk. And when the elk come down in the fall out of those snowy places like Yellowstone, if they don't find any forage in your valley, they will move on to the yeah. next valley. And so there's no elk hunting for you that fall. And when you were researching this, how many people, how many farmers did you knock on the door and talk to? How many, how much sort of on the ground research did you do? What I did was I decided to let this community just east of the park, known as Crandall, sort of stand in for those major players because they had ranchers there. And they had a lot of elk hunting guides. It was one of the top elk hunting places. So like a little perfect ecosystem for the story you needed to tell. Exactly, like a microcosm. Yeah. Because just inside the park, of course, you had the wolf watchers, this subculture that's absolutely fanatical about wolves. You had people making money off wolf tourism. It's a business now. And then just east of the park, everything is different. You know, wolves are killers. Uh, A wolf kills a sheep or kills a cow. It's got to go. 
Um, they call government trappers and they come out and shoot that animal for you. And to them, it's good riddance. And if you're hunting elk, you know, one of the public policy goals of bringing wolves back to the park, as I said earlier, was to reduce the size of that Yellowstone mm -hmm. elk herd. But if you live adjacent to Yellowstone, that's the herd that you're hunting in the fall. It comes down out of the mountains in the fall. And so to you, that herd wasn't too big. That herd was just the right size. <laughs> and furthermore, had been that size for a very long time. Yeah. And so if you didn't share that public policy goal to begin with, you're not very excited about how successful the program was. I mentioned Stephen Turnbull before we uh, went to the break. <laughs> Tell me who Stephen Turnbull is and how he comes to sort of represent these anti-wolf characters. Um, during, the, during the time that 06 was sort of coming into her own in the park, the book tells that story. 06 is the sort of wolf that the book follows yes. all the way through. Yeah, it's basically the biography of mm -hmm. this wolf named 06. And so the book follows that thread, but it also follows this other story, which is going on in courtrooms and in Congress, this endless fight over how wolves ought to be managed. And it was coming to a head during mm -hmm. that same period. And it culminated in the first legal wolf hunting season in the state of Wyoming for probably 50 years. Right. And unfortunately, 06 was one of the first wolves that was killed during that first legal wolf hunting season. She, Of course, wolves are always protected when they're in the national mm -hmm. park, and the park is huge. But wolves, their ranges are huge. They can go 20 miles in a day. They routinely go 20 miles in a day. They can go much further. And so during that first legal wolf hunting season, she wandered out of the park. Of course, the boundary is invisible and was unfortunate enough to run across this man whom in the book I call Stephen Turnbull, but that's a pseudonym. Yeah. Um, and he shot her. And the backlash against it was just immediate. You know, the New York Times the next day, world's most famous wolf shot east of Yellowstone National Park. And, it, and the news went around the world. And it reignited this fight mm -hmm. over how wolves ought to be managed. And that's how I first sort of heard her story that she had been shot. Um, at the time, it was sort of a mystery who shot this wolf. He very wisely kept his name out of the papers. Just to give you an idea of how sensitive the issue is, it's against the law in the state of Wyoming for a state official to reveal the name of a person who has shot a wolf because they anticipate the Death threats and, yeah, and yeah, worse. Yeah. yeah, and in this case, he, there's no question he would have become the next sort of Minnesota dentist that shot Cecil yeah, the Lion, yeah, if, right. if your listeners remember that yep. story. And so he wisely kept his name out of the papers. But I found him about a year after the fact, and he had changed his mind. And he was ready to tell his side of the story. He has, even though he was anonymous, his name had been dragged through the mud, as you can imagine, just everywhere. And I knew when I read that Times story that a lot of people's first reaction would be, who would do such a thing? You know, who would end this amazing story and kill this animal that had brought so much joy to so many people? Because she had literally been seen by thousands of people. Um, and I knew as a journalist the only way to answer that question was, was to ask the person who did it. Mm -hmm. I... I figured he would tell me to get lost, <laughs> but he didn't. And I just by happenstance, I, I arrived at the perfect time. This documentary about 06 had aired on, I think it was the Nat Geo channel in the United States. It didn't mention anything about politics. In fact, there were no people whatsoever in the story, and there was nothing about wolf hunting. It just tells her story. But at the very end, there's this stock photography image of a hunter and this voiceover saying, she was killed by a hunter's bullet. Right. Uh, and he resented that. He resented that. You know... And he said to himself, you know, I am not a stock photography image. I am a person, <laughs> right. and I have a story to tell. And I just happened to knock on his door, like, right after that. And so he said, let's talk. I guess investigative journalism really is about 50% luck as well. There's a lot In of luck. In some ways, right? There is a lot of luck involved, yeah. you know. But there's also, you know, you take a chance. Yeah. You go there, and, and maybe he'll talk to you, and maybe he won't. So he wants to talk. And, and what did he tell you? 
Well, I, <clears throat> I sat there with him in his cabin, and we, we talked about that day. He was extremely defensive at first. You know, he said, I, I didn't do anything wrong, and I would, and I would do it again. <laughs> he said that several times that first yeah. day. Um, and, he's, and he's right. Legally, he didn't do anything wrong. Morally, I think he himself was on the fence about whether mm-hmm. he had done something wrong. And I think that's maybe partly why he was ready to talk. I think when people start a conversation with, I didn't do anything wrong, <laughs> they know that sort of there's a gray area <laughs> somewhere yeah, in there. Yeah, <laughs> and he knew that thousands of people disagree with that assessment. Yeah. Um, but he told me, and I believe it's true, that he did not know he was targeting the world's most famous wild animal. In fact, he didn't even know he was shooting a Yellowstone wolf. She was wearing a research collar. But he shot her at 200 yards, and he mm-hmm. shot her in the winter, and their coats are very thick in the winter. Right. And even the biologists have trouble spotting those collars sometimes. And so he didn't know until he reached her, and in fact, until he, he checked her in, as you're supposed to do with a wolf in those days at a, at a game station. And then he got a call from that game manager that he'd known since he was a kid, and he said, I, I got to tell you, Stephen, <laughs> you just ticked off a whole <laughs> bunch of people. Yeah. And the next day, it was in the New York Times. And for him, it was an incredibly surreal experience. I mean, this place where he lives, east of the park, it's one of the remotest places in the lower 48. Yeah. And this thing that he did by himself at dawn, out in the mountains, was suddenly being judged all around the world 24 hours later. And it was a very surreal experience for him. And it sounds, though, that he has come to grips with it in some ways. Yes, he has. I mean, he, he's, not a, he's not a wolf hater. Yeah. I should say that off the top. He, um, in his own way, he is as obsessed with wildlife uh, as Rick McIntyre is, who right. we talked about earlier. Um, he has built his life around elk hunting. It's the reason he lives in Crandall. There's no jobs in Crandall. There's no, there's no anything in Crandall. Yeah. It's not even a town. There's no, there's no center to it. There's this one store. There's some people that run some cattle. There's some of these hunting ranches where you go and you can be guided for a hunt. And that's it. In the winter, there's no getting in or out unless you have a snowmobile. Wow. Um, and, but he has managed to make a life for himself in this cabin doing odd jobs so that he can be close to the elk. The elk are his life. Kind of like maybe some people feel about caribou in Canada. Mm-hmm. You know, it's this iconic creature. Um, if, if there were no elk in the woods, he wouldn't want to be in the woods. And there are far fewer elk in those woods, especially right there where he lives. Because he was hunting that Yellowstone herd, as I said earlier, and that herd is much smaller. And so when he was a kid, he remembers the woods being full of elk. And he would hunt them with his dad and with his granddad. And those are his most positive memories. And he's a subsistence hunter. I mean, he's there for the trophy. But he eats elk, as many people do in that part of the woods. You you shoot an elk in the fall, and there's meat in your freezer for the rest of the year, year, basically. Yeah, Yeah. and so, of course, he didn't shoot 06 for that reason. He shot 06 because he wanted that trophy. He wanted to be able to say that he was one of the first people in Wyoming to get that trophy, you know, in generations. And he also felt like he was doing a public service, you know, that he was trying to help solve this problem, as he and his friends saw it, of too many wolves in those woods. I wanted to continue the conversation about Stephen Turnbull. So Stephen Turnbull is the man who uh, we were just discussing, who has shot the main character in your book, Dead became a worldwide sensation under an, uh, under a, a false name because uh, they have to protect these people because people will go gunning for them uh, because uh, people feel so passionately about wolves. But what does – you've said that you know he's not an anti-wolfer, but there are loads of anti-wolfers. Oh, yes. 
And what do their grievances kind of speak in a more universal way to um, how we, we see the bigger divisions in, in uh, the United States right now? Well, Stephen himself is kind of a throwback. I mean, he lives in this cabin. He's a person that has never used Google. He has never right. sent an email. He has no landline. He can barely make a cell phone call. Um, most people in the Northern Rockies are not quite like him. Right. And yet there is a sense that it is kind of a world apart. And it's a place that kind of modernity is sort of passed by. And it's a place where people consider sort of their values to be kind of under siege. And so it it sort of it, it illustrates that divide that I discussed earlier, sort of the federal government versus mm -hmm. local control in the West. But it also illustrates this divide over sort of Oh, an older way of life. You know, one way you can look at the struggle in this story is between sort of old Wyoming and new Wyoming. You know, people who made their living from timber or from mining uh, or for oil, all of that still goes on there, um, versus the newcomers. People who move there after they read A River Runs Through It, right. you know, <laughs> who wanted that little piece of paradise and who have an entirely different value system, yeah. when it, especially when it comes to wildlife who think that a stand of timber is more valuable, you know, as a place for animals to live than it is to make wood for your floor. Mm -hmm. um, and who, who, if they are involved in uh, any kind of industry related to wildlife, are more interested in ecotourism than, than anything else, than in hunting. And so there's that, con there's that conflict in values there, too. Um, someone whose job it was to sell the, the, the wolf reintroduction program in these little towns in the West. His name was Ed Bangs. I interviewed him. And his job was, as, as they were sort of getting ready to bring wolves back, he would go out into these little ranching communities. And his job was not to sell the program to ranchers because that was impossible, <laughs> but just to explain to them what the federal government was doing and right. why they were doing it. So he would be in these rooms with 30 or 40 ranchers, cowboy hats and boots, horses outside, yeah. guns hopefully outside. And he would just stand up there and absorb the abuse, you know. But he became very philosophical <laughs> about it, as you would after a while. It's the only it's a survival mechanism, <laughs> yes, I would imagine. As you would after a while. And he told me that when he would go and talk to wolf advocates afterwards, sort of the other side, something he would always tell them is, he felt like some wolf advocates were operating under sort of the mistaken assumption that all that's needed is sort of more education. Right. And he's not cynical about it. He does believe more education about wolves is necessary. And there are a lot of misconceptions about wolves. But he also said some, <clears throat> excuse me, something else was necessary. He said, a lot of times what we mean by education is, I will tell you what I know, right. and then you will believe what I believe. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> and he said in his experience... It just didn't work that way. And it was a question about values, and it was a question about trying to understand what, where the other person is coming from and sort of meeting them halfway. What were some of those misconceptions that people have about wolves? <clears throat> wolves have been demonized for almost as long as people have been telling one another stories. Yeah. You know, the, the, the werewolf fairy tale goes all the way back to medieval times. Grimm's fairy tales, the wolf is always the bad guy. All of that, that whole cultural baggage around wolves is all a function of our ancestors trying to establish these agrarian and pastoral civilizations in which livestock were essential to survival. Right. And wolves were the threat. Wolves were once the most widely distributed land mammals on the planet, found almost everywhere in the northern hemisphere for thousands and thousands of years. And today, humans are. And it's no coincidence. You know, historians are always looking for this new way to sort of new lens through which to look at history. One way to think about the last 500, 1,000 years, at least in the Northern Hemisphere, is this 
conflict between these two dominant species, one of which has almost completely eliminated the other um, and forced to the margins, um, and all done in the name of, of defending this new sort of civilization. Interestingly, in areas where livestock and agrarian practices never became important, say uh, in northern Alaska amongst the Native Americans there, wolves are not thought of that way. Wolves are thought of this font of wisdom and this friend of man. Right. There's this great story in uh, Barry Lopez's book of Wolves and Men, absolute classic, about this fraught relationship between the two species. This ethnographer goes up to northern Alaska. He meets this tribe, and he asks one of the elders this kind of this riddle. He says, at the end of his life, who knows more about surviving up here, a wolf or a man? Who knows more about how to find prey and defend their families and survive in this harsh landscape? And the elder thinks about it for a minute, and he says, the same. They know the same. And uh, it's just interesting to me to see just how different and how functional all of these mythologies are. Every one of them serves a purpose of one kind or another. And so the myth that someone like Rick McIntyre or Laurie Lyman feels like they're trying to overcome is this very old idea that wolves are nothing but mindless killers bent on destroying the world around them. And it, and it, it has been a very tall order and a very tough task. The book is called The Wolf, A True Story of Survival and Obsession in the West, and I'm speaking with Nate Blakesley. Obsession is one of the big themes in the book, whether we're talking about people that write tens of thousands of pages of notes on wolves or not. Uh, did you become obsessed with this? Do you have to become obsessed with this subject in order to spend you know, the amount of time it takes uh, to put the amount of shoe leather that it takes into making something like this? Well, I'm a journalist, you know, and, uh, and uh, you know, it was my job to become as familiar with the subject matter as I could, but I, I won't lie, I, th I did find wolves a very fascinating <laughs> subject, and, and I did understand why people became so obsessed. Um, they are fascinating creatures, you know? They, it has often been said that there are no two species more similar than, than humans and wolves, just in in their sort of tribal ways, the way they live in these family units. Pack is basically a family mm -hmm. of breeding male and female and their offspring of various generations. Um, the way they defend their territories, is extremely tribal. Every part of Yellowstone, for example, is controlled by one pack or another. They endlessly patrol their territories. If anyone trespasses, there will be a fight. The most common cause of death in the park is these, these inter-pack conflicts between wolves. And someone said it was like the Game of Thrones, you know, of wildlife. <laughs> and it really is. But they're also, they're also capable of an amazing empathy. You know, you watch the den. You see them all sort of raising the pups collectively. All the wolves hunt. All the wolves care for the pups. They feed the pups like birds do. You know, they'll fill their stomachs right. with meat, and then they regurgitate for the pups, which is something to see. Um, but, and then you see the, the empathy that they have for one another. And uh, it's not your imagination. Because... Unlike a grizzly or a mountain lion who will spend 90% of their lives by themselves, wolves spend all of their time in the company of other wolves. They have to cooperate to survive. They hunt as a pack. They defend the territory as a pack. Um, and so being able to, to understand the emotional state of the creature next to you and respond accordingly is a, is a survival strategy. It's a, it's a trait that has been selected for, like uh, their great sense of hearing or their stamina mm -hmm. or their endurance over thousands of years. Why then, well, I mean, I think I know the answer, but why then are people so terrified of them? I mean, we've talked about this, but you yeah. talk about empathy. Others will talk about the terrible things that they do. <laughs> well, you heard that. I mean, uh, 
when they were first talking about bringing wolves back to Yellowstone, one of the arguments against it was, what about, you know, our kid waiting at the bus stop? Yeah, yeah. You know, as though we were living in a little red riding hood fairy tale. <laughs> Attacks on humans are extremely rare. It has never happened uh, after, since reintroduction. Mm -hmm. 20 years on now, no one has been attacked by a wolf in the Northern Rockies. And there are 1,700 wolves in the Northern Rockies, whereas there were zero 20 years ago. Um, and just worldwide, throughout history, attacks on humans are extremely rare. It, but there is this mythology around them, and there are people who stand to lose. If you're, if you're ranching cattle adjacent to a national forest, you know, you do stand to lose. Now, there are compensation programs. In the state of Wyoming, you are paid seven times the value of any sheep or cow that you lose to wolves. Furthermore, you can call a government trapper to come out and shoot that wolf for you free of charge, even if that wolf is on public land, even if those stock were killed on public land, which gets back to sort of what I was saying earlier about once you sort of peel the curtain back away the way public policy is made around wildlife management, you see how the sausage is made. <laughs> Sometimes you don't want to eat that sausage anymore. So 06 is the female character who kind of anchors uh, the entire book. How does she fit in, do you think, in a larger picture? Because you have to choose an animal that you never met. She was gone before yeah. you, you started writing this book. But she is a charismatic character. She is kind of a, an, a, an archetype of a hero of sorts. Yeah. I, you know, some <clears throat> Hollywood producers called after the, <laughs> after the book was, was optioned, and they, they said one, one of the things we liked about it was there's a strong female lead. <laughs> and I was like, well, yes, but not for a person to play. We're thinking Angelina <laughs> Jolie. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but no, you're right. I mean, in terms of like a character to build a story around, it would be hard to find a better one. However, she really is not that unusual. What's unusual is that we, we know so much about her. Right. Ordinarily with a wild animal, you wouldn't. When I, when I first started working on this project, one of the biologists that runs the wolf project in Yellowstone, he pulled me aside. He said, you know, because he knew I'd been hanging out with the watchers here in 06 stories. He yeah. goes, you know, she wasn't a super wolf. <laughs> I just want to make sure you know that. And I was like, yes. But it, to me, that was irrelevant. Like, right. My operating assumption was, if you had enough details about the life of any wolf, you would have this amazing adventure story. Uh, and we did. What were the biggest challenges in terms of writing this book? <clears throat> well, it, when I say it's a subculture, this wolf-watching subculture, it is. I mean, they're extremely friendly people. You see them on the side of the road with their scopes. You walk up to them, you look at the mountain, you can't see anything there. Uh, you get your binoculars out, you can't see anything there. But there's, these scopes are so powerful. They're, they're looking at something three or four miles away. Wow. But they're very friendly people. They'll say, hey, oh, come here, have a look. It's a wolf. Um, but in order to convince Lori, who had this treasure trove of notes, and Rick, who had never shared his notes with a journalist before, um, that I was someone worthy of their trust and that I was going to tell the story the way it deserved to be told and that I understood why they loved 06 so much, why Rick considered this wolf to be part of his family. Um, that was a difficult process. And especially because, you know, I was from Texas. <laughs> and Texas, you know, the reputation of being from Texas is that, you know, I have a rifle in the back of my pickup truck and I shoot any animal that I've seen. And I know many people that are that way. Yeah, I do. I grew up around people that were that yeah. way. Um, but I grew up in Austin. 
and Austin. Austin doesn't well it, it feels like Texas but it's it it, it doesn't feel like the, the what people think of when they think of Texas. It's a very different place. Yeah. And it is kind of the blue dot in the red sea of, yeah. of Texas. It's like New Orleans in Louisiana. That's right. A lot of people in Louisiana wish New Orleans which was not there. <laughs> um, but uh, and some people feel that way. They call it the People's Republic of Austin. That's right. But so that that was an obstacle too. And then, you know, when I went to see Stephen Turnbull and I told him, you know, I want you to be in this book, but it means you will have to tell me your entire story, uh, and, you know, warts and all, and it will all be in there. And he knew he would be the bad guy. How could he not yeah. be the bad guy? He's yeah. the guy that shoots the wolf you've been reading about for 200 pages. And it was a very, you know, that scene in the book is very sad. Yeah. Um, and he knew that it would be. But he wanted he wanted his story told, and the only, you know, he... He wanted his story and his perspective to be treated with respect. Um, and, you know, he he didn't ask me to sign anything, and he didn't sign anything. It was just a handshake deal yeah. that I would that I would tell the story with respect and that his name would not be used. Now, he did say, <laughs> he did say my name better not be in there because I found her and I can find you too. Um, wow. But uh, Literally a mountain man <laughs> saying this to you. I would he, take those words seriously. He was a mountain man. <laughs> Although he also told me he never used Google, so I thought, well, it'd be difficult for him to find. <laughs> but I did take that very seriously, um, and uh, he has read the book, yeah, and he has been in touch. He texts, you know, that's the right. easiest way for him to get a message out, um, and he was happy, or at least he was not unhappy enough right. that he, you know, was going to come out here and find me. But he he felt like I held up my end of the bargain, and that was very gratifying. Yeah, almost everyone in this book is fighting for survival on some level. Uh, who's going to win? Well, I think an honest appraisal, you would have to say that sort of the anti-wolf forces have the upper hand in the northern Rockies now. You can hunt and trap wolves all around Yellowstone. Yeah. Um, the governor of Idaho, whose name is Butch Otter, famously ran on a platform of, of wolf reduction. He promised his constituents he would get that wolf off the endangered species list and that he would shoot just as many as he could as soon as uh, it was legal to do so. And the operating MO in Idaho is still to drive that wolf population down just as low as they legally can without getting the feds involved, without getting the wolf relisted on the endangered species right. list. Um, elsewhere in the northern Rockies, the attitude is not quite that extreme. The next fight is over what ought to be done with wolves that leave the northern Rockies and disperse into other areas of the west where they still are federally protected. They're moving into Oregon and they're moving into Washington and California Presumably, they will move down into the southern Rockies, into Colorado. There's plenty of habitat there. There's no reason why they wouldn't thrive unless the social tolerance is not there for them, mm -hmm. unless the ranchers organize against them, which is what's going on now. And so the fight now is over. Should they be protected in the rest of the lower 48 or should they not? The book is called The Wolf, A True Story of Survival and Obsession in the West. And I'm speaking with its author, Nate Blakesley. So the story is done for you now in the sense that the book is out, people are reading it. Uh, what What is your involvement now? So do you still, as a journalist, when you cover something, does it stay part of you after the story is out or, or what happens? Well, sure. You know, it does. You make relationships. You work on a book for two years mm -hmm. or longer in this case, and then you, you form relationships with people and... Um, there are quite a few people who are working to raise awareness around wolf-related issues now, and I am happy to partner with them when I can, and I am doing so on this, this book tour that I'm on. Um, and, of course, the issue remains 
very close to my heart, and it's an issue that's that's in the paper almost every day, you yeah. know, if you're in the West. And so, sure, I still do follow it, and I'm happy to help spread the word. Are you working on something else right now? I'm going to do some magazine work yeah. for a while and then, um, you know, hope for another story to sort of crop up. You know, the every story pales by comparison when you when you finish a, a book like this one, you know. Um, and you, you start to compare. So you kind of let the perfect be the enemy of the good. But eventually there will be another story that sort of catches my attention. And one that is part of the national conversation. You know, as a journalist, you want to be talking about what matters to people um, and what matters to you too. And so I'm always looking for that. And I think as we said earlier, this story um, has a specific kind of focus, but the issues that, have a, have, uh, that arise in this story yeah. are universal. I would say so too. Um, and it does speak a little bit to that division that's in America right now, mm -hmm. that sort of cultural and political division. Um, and I think right now, if you're looking to sell another book, any book that isn't about that subject, yeah. <laughs> you're going to have a hard time selling. Yeah, it feels yeah. that way, yeah. doesn't it? I mean, it, it, it's a fascinating time, uh, I think, as Canadians to be sitting back here and having a look at what's happening because the news to me doesn't even seem real some days. No, I know. I, and and how, yeah. how are you feeling? These well, days. I'll tell you, I was sitting in the green room in Calgary yeah. waiting to go on TV. And of course, I'm watching the segments that are preceding me. Yeah. And each one is about this unbelievably tawdry behavior in the United States, <laughs> either Harvey Weinstein mm -hmm. or Kevin Spacey or this Judge Moore in Alabama, yeah. who your, your listeners may have heard about. And I'm just waiting to go out there, and I'm just fearing that they're going to say, and now here's an actual American. Let's bring him out. And <laughs> let's take a look at this degraded species of humanity and see what it is that's wrong with them. But, um, but I, you know, I'm joking about it now, but actually it is, it is very difficult to be living through what we're living through right now in the United States. Our national politics has become a joke and not a very funny one. What, is it a reset? Do you think in some ways that... that it needed to be given a good shake and that things will change again after all this is over? Or am I being hopelessly naive? No, I don't think you're being naive. And there is a sense that, oh, I guess a sort of bottoming out needed to happen mm -hmm. before a rebuilding process could yeah. begin. I know a number of people are optimistically thinking about it that way, that, you know, you, you hear people even in the Republican Party saying, this is not who we are. This cannot be who we are. And so we, we do need to restart you know, and start anew and, and figure out what it is that we stand for and what our values are and try to get back to, the, you know, those principles that are enshrined in our Constitution, which despite what the current resident of the White House thinks, uh, is a, an enduring document of some genius and worth keeping. Those, those uh, kind of underlying things that Stephen Turnbull probably believes to his very core, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's an interesting character. I, we talked long and deeply about Obamacare when I was yeah. sitting there in his cabin. How did you know? he feel about it? Well, he was very much in favor of it. You know, he had a heart condition. Uh, he was one of the people that definitely Democrats were trying to reach yeah. <laughs> with that program. And he said, as soon as it's available, I'm going to sign up for it. <laughs> you know, uh, and we and we we talked about that uh, at length. And the whole time that he was, it's funny, the whole time. This is a long story, but Ob Obamacare actually was in danger of being repealed. Uh, because the Republicans took over the lower house, right. the, the House of Representatives, one of the issues that that came up when the Republicans were trying to take the Senate was wolves, and one of the one of the seats they absolutely had to keep was this junior senator from Montana named John Tester, 
and the issue that he felt like he was going to win on was was wolves. He told Harry Reid, the Senate Majority Leader, that wolves needed to start dying in the state of Montana as soon as possible if he was going to keep that seat because he was being hammered on it. And so they cut a deal to take wolves off of the endangered species list in Montana. Um, first time Congress ever intervened, put their thumb on the scale in a fight over an endangered species, specifically so that he would win that seat and the Democrats would keep their hold on the Senate and Obamacare would survive past its infancy. This is how this story is more universal and more <laughs> far-reaching than, than perhaps you might think of yes. uh, at first blush. Thank you so much uh, for coming in and, and sharing your stories with Thanks us. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Well, that's it. That's all she wrote. Well, I guess I should say that's all he wrote. It's Nate Blakesley. The book is called American Wolf, A True Story of Survival and Obsession in the West. It's fascinating stuff. He's a great guy. Go out, pick up the book. It's the perfect first book for 2018. That's it. That's all the time we have. Thanks to Nate, but most of all, of course, thanks to you for coming by every single week. Without you, we would just be screaming into the void. There'd be no point in us sitting here, talking to ourselves, talking to other people. We're so glad you swing by. Come by every single Monday. We put a new show up every single week. You never know who's going to be here. So, you know, keep coming back because who knows, it just might be one of your favorite people and you don't want to miss that. <laughs>